Okay, with that, we should all be in Mark chapter 13. And we are continuing in our study today through the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me just give you a word as we're starting chapter 13 today, okay? Maybe, uh, maybe you're not a regular here, maybe you are. Um, this study is, uh, this, is a, this is a heavy study. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, kind of a little bit deep. Uh, and I just want to encourage you that this is important stuff and you can get through it. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, encouraged all the guys last service, you know, to, uh, to gear up, to gird themselves up. I, I um, got myself in trouble. I won't get myself in trouble this service. But uh, just, hey, let's, uh, let's man up and, uh, and let's go through this study. It's not a big deal. Because of the nature of the study, we're talking about prophecy. Because of the nature of, of this chapter, we've got to bite off the whole chapter. So we're going to go through the whole chapter. My pledge to you is I'm going to go quickly. Your pledge to me is you're going to stay with me, all right? Uh, we can do this. We are, I can tell you, you can get through it. Prophecy is a cool thing. Here's the, here's the deal about biblical prophecy. Is it always comes true. Uh, the Bible has a lot of prophecy in it. Um, and... Um, you know, a lot of prophecy already in the Bible has been fulfilled. There's prophecies that are given about Christ uh, and, and his, his birth, the way that he would come and, and how he would come. Uh, you know, uh, someone uh, did a mathematical study on the prophecies about, about Jesus Christ. Uh, and they said if even a handful, uh, half a dozen or so of these prophecies were fulfilled, uh, what, is, what are the, the mathematical odds that these prophecies would have been fulfilled just by random chance? And, and the mathematical odds uh, are the equivalent of if you fill the entire state of Texas up with silver dollars three feet deep and you took three silver dollars and painted them red and tossed them randomly in there and then blindfolded somebody and had them go just randomly pick out three silver dollars. If they, if they picked out the three painted red silver dollars, that would be the mathematical equivalent that just a handful of the prophecies about Jesus Christ would be fulfilled by random chance. Well, it wasn't a handful of prophecies about Christ that was fulfilled. It was hundreds of prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled. And it's a, it's a mathematical impossibility in, in, the, in the world that this should happen by random chance. So prophecy, when we talk about biblical prophecy, uh, it, it ought to excite you because it's true. And God says what he means and he does what he says. So what we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at prophecy as it relates to the end of the world. And, and, uh, and this is some, some pretty heady stuff. Uh, so I'm asking you to stick with me. Now, you'll remember, if you were with us last week, we talked about image. Um, Jesus going into Jerusalem, encountering the religious leaders, found out that they were more interested in, in establishing their little empires than they were about submitting to his kingdom. Uh, and um, he met opposition with these guys. Here he is, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, coming to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the key verse there in the Gospel of Mark, even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here he is, God, coming to give his life as a ransom, to, to die on our behalf, and yet the religious leaders are not only ready to receive him, but they're in opposition to him. He's a threat to them. So these religious leaders are, are coming up with ways to oppose Jesus, and they come up with this question uh, that they think is going to catch him in a dilemma. 
uh, and, and the question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus just responds to it, whose image is on the coin? Give me a coin, whose image is on it? They said Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. And, and the whole point in Jesus making there is, look, you guys are all concerned about image. You ought to be most concerned about the image that's stamped on you. That's the bigger question. Not should we pay taxes or not, but whose image is stamped on you? Is, is, is the image of God stamped on you or is the image of the world stamped on you? And, and we need to really contemplate that question. Because the Bible says that we've been created in the image of God. Uh, which means that we are the representation and the manifestation of God. That's who we're called to be as Christians. And so this, this whole idea of, of answering the question, whose image are we living our life in? It's a very important one. Because have you discovered the world is determined to stamp its image on you, right? In fact, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul warned us. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And literally in the Greek, uh, Paul's saying, Don't let the world force you into its mold. And the Bible tells us, and it makes it very clear in the book of Revelation, that that. The day is coming when mankind will be forced into the world's image and men and women will be forced to worship the Antichrist and to have his mark uh, tattooed uh, on their hand or on their forehead, engraved on on themselves. Uh, We are a lot closer to the, the, the rule of Antichrist and to the end of the world than you ever imagined. And we're going to talk about that today. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and he said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You can picture the scene. They've been in uh, Jerusalem, in the temple, Jesus going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, and the disciples, as they're coming out of it, as they're walking out, they say, wow, look at this building. Lord, isn't this an amazing building? And certainly it was an amazing building. Historians tell us about the temple of of God there in Jerusalem, uh, that uh, it, it was is. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was built by King Herod the Great. He started construction on it in the year 2219 BC. It took him over 50 years to complete the temple. And at this stage, when we're reading in Mark chapter 13, they were still about 18 years away from the temple being fully completed. Uh, At this point, it's still this magnificent structure uh, and and just an amazing thing, an amazing sight to behold. Josephus, one of the Jewish historians, he records that the temple stood 180 feet tall and that uh, some of the stones, many of the stones, they used huge stones, some of them were as large as 47 feet long, 8 feet high, and 12 feet thick. And to put that in perspective for you, uh, it's estimated that a stone that that size would weigh about 400 tons. Just an amazing thing. And the temple was constructed of of just stone upon stone, huge things. And and interestingly, they would carve these stones off-site because they didn't want to have the sound of hammer and chisel at the temple. 
And so they would carve the stones off site and somehow they would transport the stones and set them all in place. And they were, they were cut so perfectly they didn't require mortar. They just sat one on top of the other. Uh, and and uh, they don't even know to this day how they moved these stones, 400 ton stones. I'll put that in perspective for you, just how much that weighs. If you've ever seen a modern crane, one of these huge cranes on a construction site, the uh, strongest crane in the world uh, lifts about five tons. Uh, and these stones weighed 400 tons. They have no idea how they moved them, but in, in any case, they did. And this, this temple rose up, uh, as I said, 180 feet up in the air. And as it stood 180 feet tall, there at the top, the dome of the temple, they covered it in solid gold. And they used so much gold to cover the dome of the temple that in modern days, dollars, 2009 dollars, they, it's estimated that $10 trillion worth of gold was, was poured over the dome, which was the temple's ultimate undoing. Uh, Forty years later, as Jesus said that they were going to be conquered and the temple was going to be destroyed, it only took 40 years. Titus came in, uh, to, to stormed into to Jerusalem. The, the Jews fighting against the Romans, they couldn't, they couldn't withstand them, and so they retreated to the most fortified structure, which was the temple. And so there they are in the temple, and as the, the Titus and his troops were fighting against them, uh, the troops had been given strict orders, don't destroy the temple. But in the battle, the troops uh, threw torches into the temple and ignited all the, the contents on fire. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that the fire burned so intensely that all the people who were inside were incinerated and that the fire burned so great and so hot that that $10 trillion worth of gold melted. And as it melted down, it got into all the cracks, uh, all the nooks and crannies of the stones all the way down. And so then these Roman soldiers, after they had gone in and taken possession, they wanted the plunder. They wanted the gold. And so what they started doing was pushing the, the, the stones off to get to all the gold that had melted down into all the cracks. And indeed, Jesus' prophecy here that not one stone would be left upon another was fulfilled as, the, as they ransacked the temple and, and knocked every stone down. As a matter of fact, recently there was a, a, an excavation of the Teropian Valley, which is a, a valley below where the temple stood. And uh, they found there, they dug down to the original Roman, Roman roads, and what they found was all of these great huge stones that had been pushed off the Temple Mount down into this valley, uh, Jesus' words being fulfilled. Now, Jesus' point here to his disciples and to us is a very important point that we want to keep as we study through uh, the things that he says in regards to prophecy that he's about to say. His point to the disciples, because they're going, wow, Lord, look at this great temple. And he says, <coughs> look, not one stone's going to be left upon another. His point is, look, don't focus on what man builds. This is an incredible thing, an incredible structure that man has built, one of the, one of the wonders of the world in, in that day and age, and probably would have been one of the wonders of the world even in our day and age. Jesus is like, don't focus on what man builds because what man builds is going to fall apart. And, and what I would say to you guys this morning as we're going to study through these things is, is uh, you know, we worry about a lot of things. We focus on building a lot of things. But the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain, which build it. And so I just want to exhort you that you give, you give proper attention and proper place 
to what you're building on. Because if you're building on, on your own foundation, if you're building uh, uh, you know, on things that are, are man-made, they're going to be short-lived. They're going to, they're going to have a, a very short lifespan. But if you will build spiritually in the things of God and really give heed to what God wants to build in you and through you, that's the point. That's where you'll have satisfaction. That's where you'll have life. So <clears throat> Jesus says, hey, you know, don't, don't get all jacked up about this stuff. He said, you see these great buildings, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? That's a natural question, right? Jesus just tells them, yeah, you, this is a magnificent temple and it's all going to be destroyed. And so it's natural that they're going to say, when's this going to be? What are going to be the signs of this happening? I don't know if you watch the Discovery Channel. It's, it's like one of my favorite channels. I'm always watching stuff on the Discovery Channel and... Um, Lately, the big thing has been stuff on 2012, you know, this whole thing about the Mayan calendar and it ends in 2012 and we got a movie out about 2012 and it's fascinating stuff. You know, you think, wow, it could be the end of the world and, what, and I don't get all worked up about that because I know biblical prophecy so I already know the way it's all going to play itself out but I can't keep myself from watching these things when they come on because it's exciting, it's fascinating and you just are intrigued by that. And so this is exactly the disciples, they're, they're, you know, Jesus tells them that this is coming. Their natural response is, whoa, when's it going to happen and what are going to be the signs? Those are, those are t- probably two questions I uh, would ask myself. Now, again, when's it going to happen? What are going to be the signs? Jesus is about to respond to that and we're going to read through that. But before he does, I want to kind of give you a little bit of background information. Um, in order to do it, turn it to Daniel chapter 9, if you will. Turn to the left, Daniel chapter 9. A little bit of background information here. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27, what I want to do is make the distinction about the nation of Israel and the Christian church, okay? Um, because Jesus, his answer is going to kind of encompass both. And so it behooves you to, to kind of know uh, uh, what he's talking about here. We'll start in verse 24. By the way, this will probably sound familiar to you because we went over this a few weeks ago. So I'm not going to dwell here long. I'm going to kind of skim over it. But all right, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks. This is a prophecy given uh, to Daniel. Uh, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. So who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. He's talking about Jerusalem, okay? So 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built uh, again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Uh, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. You say, what? All right. He's talking about 70 weeks, and in the original language, it's 70 weeks of years. And, um, and he basically, it's broken down, seven weeks of years, which is 49 years, uh, until the city and its walls are rebuilt. 69 weeks, that's the seven that I just talked about, plus 62, uh, which is 483 years from the decree to go and rebuild the city until the Messiah appears. And then there's a final 70th week to fulfill the prophecy. Now, again, we went over this a few weeks ago, so uh, this might be a refresher for some of you. Um, (coughs) King Artaxerxes gave the command to restore and rebuild the temple on March 14th, 445 BC. 69 weeks of years later to the day, 173,880 days, according to the Babylonian calendar, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The date was April 6th, 32 AD. We read about it a few weeks ago uh, here in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus came triumphantly into the city just as it was prophesied. So that makes up 69 weeks of the 70 weeks. So what about the 70th week? I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> we read Daniel 9.26. It says that after 62 weeks, 62 plus 7, after 69 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now we understand that this is talking about Jesus. Jesus was cut off. He was crucified. Not for himself. It wasn't for his sins. He died for the sins of the world. Uh, And, you know, the Bible says, Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. As we prayed, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command. We know that Jesus laid his life down for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's this prophecy. 69 weeks and Messiah is going to give his life on the cross. Okay, what about the 70th week? Well, there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week. There's a gap between that, that 69 weeks of years and the 70th week of year. What is that gap? Well, that gap is us. It's the church age. The gap exists when Jesus Christ was cut off, gave himself, the church was born, and this was God's plan to redeem humanity. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Now, again, all this is background information for what Jesus is about to say. So, I'm not going to spend too long here, but uh, the idea here is that we are in this parenthesis of time. We're, we are in this gap between the 69th year uh, weeks of years and the 70th weeks of years. The gap is the church age. Now, here in Matthew chapter 22, it's a parallel to where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. 
And you'll remember a few weeks ago, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's opposed by all the religious leaders. They want to know, by what authority are you doing this? And really, they don't care what his answer is. They just don't want him to do what he's doing there. They're oppositional to him. And so Jesus says, well, I'll tell you by what authority I do it. um, But uh, I'm going to ask you a question first, and, and I want you to answer it. So he asks them the question about John the Baptist. Remember, we went over that a few weeks ago. So we asked them the question, hey, John's baptism, was it from God or was it from men? And they're, they're like, oh man, he's got us over a barrel. Because if we say it's from men, then all the people are going to be mad at us. But if we, because they believe he came from God, he's a prophet sent by God. But if we say it's by God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you do what he said? So they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know where it came from. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. And so then it, the, the text tells us that he started talking to them in parables. Basically, uh, a parable is, is a, it's a, a heavenly story with an earthly meaning, but it's kind of spoken in a riddle kind of fashion. That's what Jesus does with these guys. And he gives, here in Matthew's gospel, he has three parables that, that he gives all in a row. And every single parable is a picture to these religious leaders that basically says, look, I'm God, you're not, and you aren't recognizing that, that I'm the Messiah sent from God, you're rejecting me, and so because you're rejecting me, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so uh, he gives three parables in a row. We're going to read the last one. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out another servant, or other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all the things are ready. Come on to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his own farm, and another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Picture of... The Jews, how they mistreated Jesus and the prophets that were before him. Verse 7, But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The point is, the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. He's the only way that we can have the right standing with God, that we can come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, that's our only entrance is through Christ. Jesus makes the point here, look, <clears throat> the Jews rejected me, I'm going to go and I'm going to, to, to go to the Gentiles. This ushers in the age of the church. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that God used his ministering to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and to, to ultimately to reach the Jews. We're told in Romans 8.28 that, that in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. And so God's great love for his people, even though the Jews rejected him, he goes to great lengths to redeem them. 
and a message for us as well. Maybe you're here today and you've been running for God. God is going through great lengths to reach you. He loves you. He is a long-suffering, patient God. His patience has a limit, but He wants that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And so we come back now to to Mark chapter 13. Jesus' disciples, responding to Jesus saying, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. They're like, whoa, end of the the earth kind of stuff. What's good? When's the end of the earth? When's the end of times? When's all this stuff going to happen? What are going to be the signs for all this happening? And Jesus' answer involves both the Jews and the Gentiles, because his plan of salvation involves both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so his answer uh, involves both sides, and having that understanding that that we just went through will help you, because we're going to see, basically, his answer has four parts. One part is that uh, some of the, he's going to start off by talking about some general signs that are leading up to the tribulation period. Uh, then he's going to segue from that and talk about some specific events that pertain directly to his disciples. He's going to segue from that and talk about some specific events that pertain directly to the Jewish nation. And finally, he's going to talk about some specific events that pertain to us, the church. And I'll just tell you up front before you gloss over and check out that we're going to, we're going to lightly skim on the two middle points. It's, it's, it, it, because we just don't have enough time to go through it. And your brain can only endure as much as your seat can, can endure. So uh, we're going to focus more on Jesus' first point and last point. But uh, verse 5, Jesus responding to this disciple's question, it says, And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus starts off with uh, general signs that are leading up to the tribulation. Now, Jesus says that the the general sign, the days leading up to the end of the world, uh, are going to be characterized by deception, false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, uh, earthquakes, famines, and troubles. And I want you to take special note of what Jesus starts with, the very first words out of his mouth. Hey, Jesus, when is all this going to happen? What are going to be the signs of all this happening? First thing he says to him is, hey... Make sure, many are going to come in my name, make sure that you're not misled. That's, that's the first thing that he says to these guys uh, in verses 5 and 6. Now, what's that going to look like? What's it look like when somebody comes in Jesus' name to, to mislead us? Well, there's a lot of modern day examples that I can give to you. Uh, I can give you examples from the church. I can give you examples from cults. Uh, I can give you uh, political examples. I've uh, selected three political examples to give you today. Now, it's my prerogative. I can give you whatever example I want. But Jesus saying, okay, hey, look, don't be misled because many are going to try and mislead you. Let me give you three political examples here. Louis Farrakhan recently, actually in February 24th, 2008, he's addressing a youth rally. I want you to hear what he says to them. Quote, 
You are the instruments that God is going to use to bring about universal change. And that is why Barack Obama has captured the youth. And he has involved young people in a political process that they didn't care anything about. That's a sign. When the Messiah speaks, the youth will hear. And the Messiah is absolutely speaking. End quote. Now let me make very clear. Because I don't want any emails this week. I'm not saying that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. And as a matter of fact, because the next two political quotes I'm going to give you both are concerning Barack Obama. I'll just tell you up front. There's a spoiler alert. I'm not saying Barack Obama is the Antichrist. And, and uh, this isn't even really a comment on Barack Obama. More of more what this is, this is a comment on our times and how our society, how the people of the world are ready to embrace a Messiah figure. And that's why Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to hear. That's why Jesus is saying, hey, beware, be cautious, because people are going to be coming, manifesting themselves as saviors, and we're going to have a whole world that's going to be looking for a savior and ready to embrace the savior type that comes. Next quote. This comes from the New York Observer, February 5th, 2008, and they're quoting Chris Matthews from MSNBC. This is Chris Matthews' quote on MSNBC. He says, quote, I've been following politics since I was about five, and I've never seen anything like this. This is bigger than Kennedy. Obama comes along, and he seems to have all the answers. This is the New Testament, end quote. Next quote. Janet Daly, writing in the UK Telegraph, uh, published this report in November 2008. Quote, There's a video clip running on YouTube which shows a woman moved nearly to tears at an Obama rally, telling a television interviewer that all her problems will be at an end when he is elected president. She won't have to worry anymore about putting gas in her car or paying her mortgage because, quote, he will help me, end quote. It would be easy to find this absurd, the reporter continues, the blind faith of an unsophisticated voter who has clearly mistaken Barack Obama for Jesus, but in truth it is both sad and alarming, end quote. And she goes on in the article to talk about so many people are looking to Barack Obama as their Messiah, as their Savior. And Jesus warns his disciples 2,000 years ago, you know, in response to their question, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? When, when is it coming? He says, first words out of his mouth, take very careful attention that nobody deceives you because there's going to be a lot of false messiahs that come and the whole world is looking for a messiah to follow. That's the atmosphere that we live in. Now, Again, Mark chapter 13, if you look at verse 8, the end part of verse 8, Jesus says some some real interesting stuff here. Actually, let me just kind of go through the verse. He says, for nation will rise against nation. The the literal translation of that word nation uh, is is, uh, ethnos. He's talking about ethnic ethnic contentions, ethnic wars. We see huge ethnic wars happening right now, especially in Africa. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He says there will be earthquakes. We're going to talk about that in a minute, Various in various places. There will be famines. We're going to talk about that. And there's going to be troubles. Now, listen to what he says. He says, these are the beginnings of sorrows. If you're a note taker, circle that word sorrows. Next by it, you might want to write the word birth pang because that's exactly what that word that he uses literally translated mean. He says, these are the beginnings of birth pangs. Now, 
Ladies, those of you that have had children, you know birth pangs really well, right? Your whole pregnancy is one of uncomfortableness. As the baby grows and all your internal organs shift uh, up into your throat uh, and you're uncomfortable, okay? But when you go into labor, it's a whole new ball game, man. And you have pain like, you know, Carol Burnett says childbirth is like taking your bottom lip and pulling it over your head. Okay, so, so you understand this, ladies. And guys, you know, while we don't understand it, we can appreciate it. We see our wives going through this. My wife, Brenda, she's in labor with, with our daughter, Megan. We have, we have three kids. Three kids. I didn't say... <laughs> Three kids. We have three children. <laughs> Megan, I started to say Caitlin, and anyway, Megan, Caitlin, Scotty. All right. Megan, my firstborn. Brenda goes into labor. Now, we, I, I'm, you know, I'm an involved dad. We go through, you know, the breathing classes, you know, and, I, and that back in that when that was popular, and we're going through the breathing classes. And, and so Brenda's having these contractions, and they're, they're coming more and more frequently. They're lasting longer, uh, greater intensity. Uh, and, and so here they go, and I, I'm saying, okay, honey, here's how you're supposed to breathe, you know, the, whatever it is, you know, can't even remember. And she's like, I'm past that. And I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking, okay, here's the next breathing pattern. I'm past that. I go to the next, oh, here's the next breathing. I pass that. I'm like, the last step is, is delivering the kid. She goes, yeah, get the nurse in here. You know, I, I call the nurse. Well, meanwhile, me going through all the breathing patterns, I blew off all my CO2. I hyperventilated. So now the room is just spinning. I'm like, you know. So me, Mr. Paramedic, the, the nurse comes in. I'm sitting with my head between my legs trying to get my CO2 back, you know. And, oh, you know, they're a big tough guy. And the nurse is in there. Yeah, you get, get it together, dude. Your wife's having a baby. You know, we run down faster, longer, harder. That's Jesus' point here. He says, look, there's going to be wars, famines, all these things. And they're going to be growing in intensity. And that's what you have to look for, Jesus says. And... We see that manifesting itself. He said, I'll give you just a few examples. He says there's going to be wars. And, and it's going to be like birth pangs. So there's going to be more and more of them. They're going to be greater in intensity. They're going to be stronger. And you can Google this for yourself, but there's been more wars in the 20th century than ever before in all of human history. The 20th century was the first century in all of human history where warfare consumed the entire planet. And it happened not once, but twice. First time ever. The Red Cross estimates that over 100 million people were killed in the 20th century due to warfare. In 1993 alone, there were 29 major wars that were fought in the world. And since the end of World War II, over 23 million people have been killed in warfare. So we see these birth pangs, wars, are on the rise, they're on their increase, they're more frequent, they're more intense, they last longer. Earthquakes. Now, there's a lot said about earthquakes, and we know just anecdotally that earthquakes have increased, uh, it seems, here in our modern times more than ever. I just want to look at this, the 21st century, the last eight years since we entered into the 21st century. There have been nine monster earthquakes in the last eight years. And when I say monster, I mean monster earthquakes. Over, get this number, it blew me away. Over 491,000 people have died in earthquakes over the last eight years alone. Just eight years. 
The largest earthquake measured 9.0. It was in Sumatra. You guys remember that one in Indonesia. It caused that huge tsunami, killed a quarter of a million people. I was there. I went to Banda Aceh, and I was on the ground less than a month after that earthquake had hit. There were still dead bodies strewn all over the place. The damage was, was um, I can't even describe to you the extent of the damage that was caused. That earthquake was so large that scientists say it actually altered the earth's rotation. That's how big that earthquake was. Famines. We have had a number of famines in the 20th century and they've increased 70% from the previous centuries. And so the the fact is, Jesus said, look, it's going to be just like birth pangs. There's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, and we see it playing itself out exactly like Jesus said. Now, what this ought to do, and my hope for you when you hear this, you're like, okay, this is great information, what's it mean to me? Well, what it means to you is that Jesus is coming just like he said, and you need to be getting yourself ready to meet him. Because he said he's coming, he said what the signs were going to be, and now we're living in a day and age when those signs are increasing. Now, now he turns in verses 9 through 13, he's going to give specific events that pertain to the disciples. Uh, We're going to spend less time on this, but it's important. He turns to them, he says, verse 9, but watch out for yourselves. Now that's good advice, right? That's the, if I was to sum up this whole message, I think I'd sum it up with that. Watch out for yourselves. As a matter of fact, he's going to come back to that, and that's what we're going to end on at the end of this chapter. But he tells his disciples, watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before uh, rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Now, we, we just finished going through the book of Acts. We spent about 14, 16 months going through the book of Acts. And we saw that carry itself out. Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 8. We saw the disciples being dragged in, having to give an account before rulers, having to give an account before the synagogue leaders, uh, having to, to you know, speak uh, defense by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus says here, you're going to be brought before them for my sake. And verse 10 he says... And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Interesting thing here. How many of you have ever heard someone say that the Bible says that the gospel has to first be preached to all the nations before Christ returns? Hey, you guys heard that? All right, we just read it, right? Okay. Now, we've all heard that the gospel has to be preached. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know what? The gospel hasn't gone forward to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and so Jesus can't return. That's not true. Let me, let me read to you an interesting verse from the book of Revelation. I'll, I'll just read it to you. You can take down the address. It's Revelation 14.6. Listen to what John says. He says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. See, what John says here in the book of Revelation is that the gospel will go to every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue, and it's going to go by an angel of God. Now, don't misunderstand. God has given to us, we read in the book of Acts, the exhortation that we're to go to make disciples of all the nations. But what God's going to do in in the book of Revelation reveals is that he's going to finish the job. 
He's given to us this responsibility to, to be ambassadors of Christ, to spread the good news, and, and, and to, 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 to be His hands and His feet. But He's not going to have to wait for us to get the job done. When He is ready, He's going to send His angel to finish the job, and He's going to return. And all that to say this, Christ can return at any moment. He truly can. And so there is nothing holding him back from returning. Which comes back, if you are like awake, if you hear my voice, if you have a pulse, then you ought to be thinking, wow, that means like before I get in my car and go home that Jesus could return. Yes, he really, really could. And he said just very clearly, look, I do what I say, I say what I mean, I've given you the prophecies, I'm coming back, and when you see all this stuff, man, Johnny Bench, you better be ready to catch that kid because he's going to be delivered. And so we see all of these signs happening. He's at the door. He's coming back. And so here, you know, we, we see all this stuff happening. Verse 11, he says, But when they arrest you, still speaking to his disciples, and they deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus told his disciples in John's gospel, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Jesus said in the, servant, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He's like, look, I'm going to tell you what the sign of the end of the age is going to be. I'm going to tell you the things to watch for. I'm going to tell you when this stuff is coming. But what I don't want you to do is get all hyped up on that and focused on that. What I want you to do is to be prepared to be my man in the place where I've called you to be. And I think that's a good word for each one of us. I don't know about you guys, but I've met people who are prophecy nuts. And they'll sit down and they'll go over the things of prophecy and they'll look through all the, the scriptures and they'll, they'll study them and they'll, they'll talk about them and it just kind of seems to consume everything that they do when, as it relates to their study through God's word. And that's fine to a point, but I think that God's greatest desire for us is that we would be his hands and his feet, his ambassadors to a fallen world. We're called to be the image of Christ. We've been made in His image, the representation, the manifestation of of God, as we studied last week. And so God's word to His disciples here is a great word to us. Hey, look, all of this is what's coming, but you watch yourself. You watch how you live. You be the witness to your neighbor. You need be the witness to that, that guy at work that, that, that's so difficult for you to deal with. You focus on being my man, on my, being my woman, on my timetable, on my clock. That's what you focus on. And just recognize the time so that you're living accordingly. All right, let's move on. Verse 14. Verse 14 through 27, Jesus gives some specific events that pertain to the Jewish nation. Now, we're, we're really not going to spend time here. We're going to read through it. I'll, I'll make a couple of comments, and we're going to move on. Let me just tell you up front. Um, 
what we're talking about here is, is what relates to that time of the great tribulation. We read through uh, Isaiah's prophecy or, or Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel talks about how the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. And there's going to be a seven year reign for the Antichrist. And really, these next verses that we're going to read, that's the period of time that Jesus is referring to. If this kind of stuff intrigues you, you can go to our website. I've got, I'm going through uh, the study on Revelation starting uh, in January, the home Bible study that I teach on Wednesdays, uh, and we'll put all the information online for you, so you can either come to the study, you can, you can read it for yourself. But verse 14, Jesus speaking, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen, uh, has not been since uh, the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now some people read that, the elect's sake, and they go, Oh, see, there's an example. The church is going to be in the tribulation. No, this isn't speaking to the church. This is speaking to Jews. The church is going to be raptured out. We're going to come, I'll come back and touch on that in just a second. Verse 21, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and get and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, the Bible prophecies spell out a very specific timeline for the last days. Um, starting with the Jews rejecting Christ, that entered that period, that parenthesis period, that gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. We are the gap, okay? We're the church. We're, we're now dwelling. But the time is going to come when the Lord takes His church out, just like He took Noah out. Just like, just, just like God said, okay, I'm sending a flood against the earth, but, I'm my, but Noah is not going to go through it. I'm going to take him and the righteous out of the way. God's going to do the same thing with the church. Uh, it's called, we call it the rapture. Uh, here's the, the scripture address, so if you're taking notes. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Let me read it to you. This is the way that, that 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 puts it. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. That, 
That phrase caught up, that's where we get the word rapture in the Latin Vulgate. It's raptus. We get the word rapture from that. We who are left will be caught up, will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And so we're in this parenthesis of time now in the, between the 69th, 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is the great tribulation period that's going to last seven years. And just before the tribulation, God's going to yank us out. He's going to take the church out of the way. We are the restraining force that is present in the earth now. We're that restraining force because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. God's going to take us out of the way. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And for the next seven years, there's going to be hell on earth. It's going to be the time of the great tribulation. The Bible says first three and a half years is going to go good. And the world's going to be singing the guy's praises. The last, last three and a half years, not so much. Uh, actually speaking of that tribulation period, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 21, verse 26. He says, Men's hearts will fail them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we see in that tribulation period how there's going to be, you know, a third of the earth destroyed here and a third of mankind destroyed there. There's going to be, you know, the way we read it, great nuclear exchange and horrible, horrible things that are, that are coming on the earth. But, thank you Jesus, we ain't going to be here. God's going to rapture the church out, which is why it's so very, very important that we have this right relationship with the Lord. Now, case I've completely lost you, which I fear maybe I have. We're going we're gonna to wrap it up here. And believe it or not, I'm going to be done in about four minutes. Okay? So here's what I want to get your attention. Because all of this is leading somewhere. And, and if I haven't brought you there, God help me. Because this is, this is where I, I, what I want you to leave with. Okay? First of all, you need to know all this is true. Jesus' disciples say, hey, hey what, what, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And what are the signs going to be? And Jesus is just laying it all out. I've just, just taken some modern examples and plugged them in and showed you how truly we're in labor and we're about ready to, to, to see this thing delivered. We're, we're, we're right where Jesus said we're going to be. And so now in these final verses, Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, he's speaking to us because these final verses of chapter 13, they pertain to where we're at right now. Verse 28, he says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is, it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And then, just in case you doubt that, he says in verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, here's the thing. We know throughout Scripture that God likens the nation of Israel to a fig tree. We just went through this a few weeks ago as Jesus was coming in. And he, goes, he approaches that fig tree, and metaphorically, he, he curses the tree, and it withers and it dies. And then the, the, the picture is that Israel wasn't producing fruit. Well, we learn in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 that, that the Lord there gives this remarkable prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. <coughs> and what he promises is that he's going to restore them to their land. 
He's going to multiply their fruit, them as this, this metaphorical fig tree. And he says that he's going to breathe life into these dry bones, into these dead bones. And Ezekiel there, he sees all these disjointed bones come together and, and God himself breathes life into them. And, and this, this is restored. This is a picture of God restoring Israel. And, and never before in the history of the world have you had a nation of people that have been conquered and destroyed, scattered, and then later reestablished as a nation. And of course, we know that that happened with Israel. In 1948, specifically May 14th, 1948, never before in human history, God restored the nation of Israel, brought all the Jews that had been scattered, brought them back together as a nation. This was fulfillment of biblical prophecy in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And Jesus is saying here in verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, what generation? Our generation, the generation that sees Israel restored as a nation, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. He says, take it to the bank. That's the triggering event. Now, some people go, well, you know what? It wasn't until they fully took possession of Jerusalem that that this prophecy really is fulfilled. Okay, cool. That happened in 1967. 67 war, they took Jerusalem, sent all their enemies packing, and I was born in 64, so cool. That's my generation, man, I'm there. This generation is going to see the return of Christ. Take it to the bank, it's going to come. So again, okay, Ted, great, it's going to come, you've persuaded me, so what? What, what really difference should that make for me today? Glad you asked. Let's continue on. Jesus says... Verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, Jesus said, look, this stuff is coming to pass. You don't know exactly when it's coming to pass, but take it to the bank. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in your lifetime. That's the thing you need to take away. So he says, verse 33, take heed, watch and pray, for you don't know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowning of the ro- or at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Verse 37, he says, And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, here's what I want you to take away from this. The point of application all comes down to this. Three times, verse 33, verse 35, verse 37, the Lord's, the Lord's word to us is watch. Interesting, the very first time he says that, it's a Greek word that means don't fall asleep. The last two times he says it, the last two times he says to watch, it's a Greek word that means pay attention, be alert, be very circumspect, circumspectful in the way that you live your life. Now, I was going to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, but for time's sake, let me just cut to it and just tell you. You read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, very specific section of scripture there. It says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And it goes on to say, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Very interesting there. Same section of scripture, same exhortation as what the Lord says here, 
don't fall asleep and pay attention. That's what the Lord says to us. I'll close with this story. When I was a teenager, I had been raised in a Christian home and I walked away from God. Uh, and if you had asked me, the scary part is, if you'd asked me at the time, I was in the height of my rebellion, I wouldn't have told you, I would have insisted that I was a Christian, that I hadn't walked away from God, but I denied Him with my life. And, and so here it culminates, I'm out in the mountains, I'm, on a, I'm in a trip with my friends, and we're up at Kennedy Meadows, which if you're familiar with it, it's in the High Sierras and uh, Central California, and I'm up there camping with the guys, and I'm drinking my brains out. And I wake up in the middle of the night. I had blacked out because I drank too much. And I wake up, it's pitch black. I mean, you can't see your hand literally in front of your face. It's so dark. And I'm standing out, I don't know where, in my underwear. And I've just come to my senses. I just woke up out of a drunken stupor. And there I am in the pitch black in, in 20 degree weather in my underwear. And I woke up. And instantaneously I recognized, Ted, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You've done it now. You drank too much. You don't know where you are. You don't know which way is the camp. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And all you got are you and your chonies and that's it. (laughs) I cried out to God like I'd never cried out before. I said, dear Jesus, help me. I've got myself into huge trouble. And I just started walking. And by the grace of God, I walked into the side of my tent found my way inside into the sleeping bag and I repented. I was sleepwalking through life. It's a perfect metaphor for where I was at. Just sleepwalking through life. Let alone being attentive, being alert about, you know, how am I living my life? I had gotten to the place where I just in a drunken stupor, I'm sleepwalking. And I wonder as we close today where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. Are you sleepwalking through life? Are you in that drunken stupor of a place? Are you in the place where you're not being wakeful and watchful and mindful that that we live in the last days, that Jesus is returning? I pray today as we close in prayer that you take this to heart, that, that, that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that you believe that he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do, and that you would take it to heart And just as he exhorts three times here, that you would watch. You'd be awake and you'd watch.